welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about publicly available transportation, public spaces, the way we get around, and what surrounds us in the public sphere. Here in Episode 9, we turn to two movies set in Chicago, The Fugitive and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I am Cheryl Gross Glazer, your host. So the movies we will be covering in this episode employ Chicago as their backdrop. Um, And these are both classics, albeit in very different genres. And because we're looking at two movies, we're only briefly going to summarize each one and explore some of the scenes where Chicago plays a meaningful part. So these two movies feature a few of uh, Chicago's iconic public spaces and transportation that will give you a sense of the city. But unlike the first movie we covered, Roman Holiday, where the city of Rome played uh, a major part, in these movies, Chicago is more of a bit player. Um, which is more common. It's pretty common in Chicago movies. And maybe one that could have been replaced by another city with its own noticeable locations. Um, And before we talk about the movies in any detail, let's go to our moment of equity. So our moment in equity today is to recognize and counterbalance the movies uh, we'll be exploring in the rest of the episode. The movies today involve white characters, either very waspy or minimally Catholic. But in contrast to the real Chicago, uh, people of color are either absent or their experiences as people of color are ignored. And we're also not going to see Chicago as an ethnic city, except in a very superficial way in these movies. So in our moment of equity, we're talking about a short film that you've probably never heard of as a way to contrast those movies uh, with, in our episode, with, you know, kind of Chicago as it really is, perhaps, or a different side of Chicago than we usually see in movies. And the film is Drive Slow. It was written and directed by a young filmmaker named Terrence Thompson. It's only about 13 minutes long. It's very uh, funny and insightful and even sensitive. Uh, Look at a teenager who's trying to write his college essay. And we're with him in in that moment of absurdity, uh, you know, the situation that we all like stare at the computer and you know don't know what to write Uh, but we're also seeing this young African-American teenager on the cusp of figuring out where he'll be going in life and he's trying to make uh, sense not (laughs) I'll say that again trying to make sense of where he's grown up on the south side of Chicago in the context of the white world of college admissions and maybe the white world of college and in terms of how he perceives the world uh, he's living in with his friends and family. So a lot of what the movie, this 13-minute movie, discusses is frustration in explaining to outsiders, particularly white people, what the South Side and other neighborhoods that are known for crime offer in terms of community. And I'll tell you, as I was watching this, it was crazy how similar uh, my experience was when I was um, leaving Brooklyn and starting to meet people who had the same reactions about, like, oh, my God, how can you live there? There's murders all the time. This is a long time ago. Um, (laughs) You know, there's murders and rapes there. How How can you live? Are you not? If one person actually asked me once, how many times have you been raped? And so I, I really could feel what these uh, what this main character and and his friends were talking about uh, when they're the place where they they've grown up and they have affection for is considered violent and one dimensional. Uh, but the 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 film takes a turn at at one point where the protagonist and his friends are hanging out outside and they're talking. Um, and they hear gunshots, and suddenly we go from uh, 
comedic to serious, and we see that we're in a public housing project or a poor neighborhood, and then uh, we go to witness a long, thoughtful conversation with our with our teenager and his mom. And his mom is in, she's intelligent, she's professionally dressed, and she's explaining why she stays on the south side of Chicago and telling her son about her cousin's family's tragic experience in an unnamed white Cleveland suburb. Um, and the message that she's giving him is that a black man is not any safer in an affluent white world than on the South Side, that life is dangerous anywhere in the United States for black men. And our, our protagonist then begins his essay with the line that living where he's grown up has taught him to drive slow. Uh, which means to see more than the negative, one-dimensional view of this place he calls home. Uh, there's no real exploration of public spaces or transportation, per se, in this short film, but we're left to ponder how neighborhoods shape us, stay with us, and give us context. And now to our two movies, The Fugitive and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, we're going to talk about the Chicago River, the bridges, the L, and parades made famous in those movies. So lots of fun stuff in this episode. So a very quick rundown of these movies. Um, both excellent, both classics. Uh, the Fugitive is a, a film that's a thriller mystery from 1993 starring Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, Ford was already very well established at this point. Uh, Ford plays a doctor wrongfully convicted of murdering his wife and he escapes after being sentenced and he's on the run during most of the movie all the while trying to collect evidence to find and to prove um, who is actually guilty for, for the murder of his wife. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones plays the U.S. Marshal tasked with bringing the doctor back to prison. And don't get caught up with why it's not Chicago or Illinois law enforcement in charge. It is explained in the movie. I don't know whether it's really believable, but don't get caught up in that because it's, it's a good movie. And there's a very nice supporting cast as well. Movie number two is the 1986 classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a comedy about a suburban Chicagoland high school student played by Matthew Broderick. He brilliantly fools his parents that he's sick so that he needs to stay home from school. There's the principal and Ferris's sister, she's played by Jennifer Grey, who seek to prove the ruse, and, uh, and then there's Ferris's best friend and his girlfriend, both of whom Ferris convinces to spend the day with him, partly in Chicago. And I watched this movie um, at an outdoor screening this summer, and 99% of the 200 or so people had definitely not been born when this movie came out, so it's remained very popular. And spoiler alert, both uh, movies feature Parade in downtown Chicago. So what I like about these two classic movies in terms of this podcast episode is that they're kind of two sides of the same uh, coin, especially when we discuss the parades, but even as we consider our characters moving around in Chicago, which is a good bit of both movies, the city is a bath, a backdrop for exploration and adventure, and the fugitive for hiding, sometimes in plain sight, and in Ferris Bueller for exuberance and being loud and proud about oneself. So first, The Fugitive. Uh, so this is, as I said, a murder mystery. Um, a wonderful type of movie to set in a city because of the memorable public spaces and transportation. Um, it's an opportunity to place the characters, to show their knowledge of the city, and to use the locations for hide-and-seek and for chase scenes. Now, generally, the downside for me of this type of movie when it's, it's shot in a city is that um, these, these type of movies usually portray some large city as dangerous or unforgiving. And I have to say The Fugitive does not fall prey to that. Um, so the early scenes in the, in the city, the murder, the fancy banquet, the trial, none really use the city. The outdoor scenes are at night. They could be anywhere. 
Um, and almost halfway through the movie, we're still watching Dr. Kimball out on the run outside of Chicago. So it's a long way into the movie before um, Chicago begins to play its part. And I am drinking my coffee. This is from Zeke's, but next episode, I believe, I will have um, some other kind of coffee to share with you. Anyway, I know. You're going to be, like, lying awake at night for that one. Okay, so when we do find ourselves in Chicago, we have Harrison Ford, the doctor on the run. He's by one of the downtown bridges. Uh, he's beside the bridge and at a payphone uh, located by the Wells Street Bridge at North Wells and West Wacker. And we see slowly a 360 uh, turning of an, uh, you know, to see this iconic Chicago Bridge and River View. Um, but unlike in many movies, what we're seeing is a cold, cloudy winter day. Uh, this movie doesn't glamorize the city so much as uh, place us there. And the marshals who pursue the doctor have an office with an amazing view of the river. Uh, and these office scenes were shot at 444 North Michigan Avenue on the, on the 27th floor. Oh, my dog has just come in. Hello, sweetie. Okay, can you sit down? Um, so someone left a comment at a the blog post about this movie uh, on the website. It's filmthere.com to say that they, quote, worked on the 33rd floor of that building at the time, and building workers were able to tour the set after shooting wrapped, uh, end of quote. So in The Fugitive, what's unusual is that when we see the Chicago River, we have neither a conversation between two people walking over one of the bridges or just a brief um, screenshot of the river, which includes a bridge or bridges. Um, instead, we have that first scene with, with uh, Harrison Ford beside the river and um, the suggestion as Chicago is urban maze, a place in which you can go about unnoticed anonymous if if you are careful and you know how to navigate around town and in this case I'm navigating with my dog who is exploring in my very crowded closet literally the laundry basket and you know what a dog would like to do you know like eat some stuff there okay <laughs> The view of the city and um, of the river and the city from the marshal's office give one uh, a sense of the search for the doctor, this convicted murderer, as akin to finding a needle in a haystack. And that haystack is the city of Chicago. Uh, we have at least one view of the river and, and one of... Um, so, oh, let me go back for a second here. <laughs> The dog turned me around. Um, so I'll just say that at least one view of the river and one of Chicago's bridges is basically a requirement to show that a movie is based in Chicago. It's a city-placing visual cue, uh, though when some, sometimes one only sees um, this for a second or two. So in a first tidbit of history, um, the website ChicagoLoopBridges.com says that the bridges are anywhere from about 30 years old uh, um, to 100 years old. And, the, and from the lower end, the West Randolph Street Bridge to, on the higher end, uh, the 100-year-old, a West Washington Avenue Bridge, with the median age being in, uh, being in the 80s. So here I'll quote from Chicago Loop Bridges. Quote, The Chicago River is actually a link between the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. End quote. Um, because that navigable river link is still useful, Chicago's river bridges are, are movable, meaning they open for water traffic, which is amazing, right, considering how much constant actual traffic and, um, and pedestrians and buses and bicycles go over those bridges. Um, and yet they also provide, so they're providing a vital path both for this river traffic, for the, the boats, the ships, and, and for people who live there. So compare the many bridges linking Boston and Cambridge or New York's, New York's bridges, like between Brooklyn and Manhattan, most of which are not movable. 
So I'm not going to dive down here into the detailed history of Chicago's bridges because I actually put aside all of that rabbit hole of research for another episode. There was so much. I will just say that these bridges count as both publicly available transportation for low and zero emission modes of walking, biking, e-bikes, etc. And they are places that give a visual sense of open space in a very big city, much like a public park. You feel like you're out um, in nature when you're out on, on a river walking across. So another pure set of Chicago scenes in The Fugitives show the river uh, dyed green for St. Patrick's Day, and we have an extended um, time at the St. Patrick's Day parade. Uh, Dr. Kimball is presumably near the parade when we're first aware of it because we, we've seen the very green river and we can hear bagpipes in the background. And we're going to stop here for a few minutes to look at the history of the temporary greening of the river and the parade before we go back to talk about what happens in this extended scene. So according to the blog Chicagoology, uh, which has a nice photo of the river dyed green, the dyeing of the Chicago River Green uh, during St. Patrick's Day festivities uh, came way after the parade itself became an institution. That colorful addition was due to uh, a labor leader's accidental discovery about an orange dye, yes, orange, not green, orange, that was used to detect whether pipes are leaking and to trace the flow of water. And this orange dye was being used in 1962 as part of water pollution control efforts because you could see the flow of the water. Okay, so in 1962, we have Stephen M. Bailey, this labor leader, who also happened to be a close friend of Mayor, Mayor Daly's, and he was general chairperson of the parade. And he happened to see a plumber's overalls, which were appeared almost tie-dyed in the perfect shade of green, and he asked how the dye was used, and more importantly, its capacity to turn water green. And supposedly... He made that die-to-parade-and-river connection instantly, that light bulb moment for Bailey, and he shouted, Eureka. So the river was... I know, isn't that great? I don't know if it's actually true, but it, it would make a great movie moment. Hint, hint. Okay, so the river was first dyed green in 1962 with 100 pounds of the dye, and motorboat played the part of giant kitchen mixer to spread the dye throughout the downtown portion of the river. And there are still boats that are used to mix in the dye. The Chicago River uh, remained green for days that year. Now uh, they only use 40 pounds of dye uh, to go in the river, and it, it remains green for just uh, a few hours. I believe it's a vegetable-based mix. It's not. This is not anything that's doing any harm. Uh, and if you want to read stories about funny things that have happened over the years at the parade, concerning the parade, like I uh, just read to you about the dying of the river, uh, Chicago Ology's post about St. Patrick's Day is in the show notes. Lots of information. Now getting to the actual parade, uh, it does not actually commemorate the birth of St. Patrick, who converted the Irish to Christianity, specifically Catholicism. Rather, the holiday is an observance of the saint's death. Uh, but that's really for sticklers, because the holiday really now is about celebrating everything Irish, whether you descended from anyone who came to Ireland or not. It's not generally celebrated out and about as a religious holiday. A little more coffee there. So... I would say the Chicago St. Patrick's Day Parade is definitely in the top 10 or 20 of famous U.S. parades, um, up there with the Tournament of Roses Parade in Pasadena on New Year's Day and New York tip, ticker tape parades. And the movie The Fugitive did a lot to make this particular St. Patrick's Day Parade famous beyond um, Chicagoland. So the modern Chicago parade is a relatively recent affair, but the first Chicago's 
uh, St. Patrick's Day parade dates back to 1843, and there were only uh, a little less than 800 Irish people in Chicago at the time, this being uh, a few years before the massive migration associated with the potato famine. Uh, the parade was directly connected to the religious celebration of this saint's day. And I'm going to quote here from Chicagoology. Beginning on Clark Street, the Grand Marshal Smilin' John Devlin, Davlin led the first attendees down Michigan Avenue and into St. Mary's Catholic Church for Mass. The tradition continued until 1896, after which it suddenly ended for unknown reasons. So, so that parade lasted for over 50 years. There's been conjecture that the merchants felt that the parade ate into their receipts or that no parades were permitted on at least part of the route. Whatever the opposition, the parade was not held again until that force of nature himself, the first Mayor Daley, uh, resumed the tradition in 1956. Now, during that hiatus between 1896 and 1956, uh, Chicago's Irish communities on the west side and the south side had established their own parade traditions, which became beloved in their own right. So Daly's challenge was to enlist popular support for one major downtown parade. And what Daly accomplished was a brilliant public relations coup. So he declared that the 1956 parade would be held in honor of the 100th anniversary of the old St. Patrick's Church Parish with the parish's priest, Father Thomas Byrne, as the parade chaplain. Because the parade was ostensibly a one-time anniversary event, parade boosters could save face in case the parade at the Loop in downtown did not attract people or otherwise do well. Uh, they also had a World War II hero as the Grand Marshal, and Daly himself was honorary chairperson. Now remember, it's March in Chicago. In the wee hours of that March 1956 day of the first parade, still very much in winter, it snowed. Not much, only four inches, but the parade, the parade route was covered in snow, and, and that's a problem. So, again, according to Chicagoology, that morning, Daly was called by a young West Side reporter who had helped Daly with making the case for a unified parade downtown. And the reporter basically said, we have to postpone the parade, maybe even make it another day. And they, they, uh, Daly's response was classic. He said that it was a great day, thanks be to God, and that the parade would begin as planned at 10 a.m. Daly had already called into action a massive snow removal operation to clear, to clear the parade route of these four inches. And if you look at the photos, you will see plenty of people wearing winter coats, but the streets are clear of snow. Indeed, it appears as if snowflakes had ever hit the ground early that morning. By the next year, that young reporter had become the parade coordinator, and the parade itself was put on by a newly formed not-for-profit named the St. Patrick's Day Committee, ostensibly to insulate the parade from City, city Hall, meaning, meaning the mayor himself, but the mayor was still the honorary chair, and Chicago in those years was... Uh, very much ruled by the mayor up and down for good and for bad. Okay, um, so uh, we have the first parade, it's a success, um, and in the next couple of years, this, this not-for-profit, the St. Patrick's Day Committee and its leadership, they warmly welcomed labor participation in addition to businesses. They expanded the parade from an Irish event into an Everybody is Irish on St. Patrick's Day event, and they invited um, many of Chicago's other ethnic groups to join in the parade. Uh, today there are there are separate smaller parades in other neighborhoods of Chicago, but the downtown St. Patrick's Day uh, parade is the main deal, and I think there's a couple of reasons why 
Um, and it, first of all, this parade transforms the end of winter, gray downtown streets of Chicago into a magical place. And because the streets are opened up and they become even more pedestrian friendly than usual without any cars. Okay, now we'll return to our movie, The Fugitive, and let's set the scene before we are fully placed in the parade. We have a few minutes where we know the parade is going on, but we're not in it. We see a slow procession of bag plight, bag, say that ten times fast, slow, slow procession of bagpipe players in kilts with their tall fur hats marching. Uh, we see mounted police and a leprechaun and leprechaun lady. The streets are crowded uh, with onlookers. Before we go back to Harrison Ford, he's presumably near the parade because uh, we've seen the Green River and we're still listening to those bad bagpipes. And we can see Harrison F Ford walking in downtown. He's on the street and we see him approaching Chicago's uh, City Hall County Building and then entering this beautiful building. And I'm going to very quickly tell you a brief uh, history of the building. First, uh, previous to the current building was um, a building that was that acted as the City Hall but was called the Old Chicago Courthouse. And in 1865, President Lincoln uh, was laid in state after he was assassinated in this, in this building. And after this City Hall burnt down in the Great Fire of 1871, but only after ringing its bell to sound the alarm, two other buildings served as City Hall, one built around a water tank that survived the fire, and this was situated at LaSalle and Adams Streets. Today that site houses the Rookery Building, uh, which was built in 1888. And the other uh, temporary building was built in the French Empire style at the present site. It was demolished and replaced in 1905 by the present and larger classical revival structure. So back to our, uh, our movie, we have Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones, before they go to the parade, we're off the street, and we are inside City Hall. And what City Hall provides is a nice backdrop for the beginning of a chase uh, when one of the federal marshals spots the doctor on the stairs. So we're using a crowded building and commotion with the lead marshal, Tommy Lee Jones, firing his gun several times, not recommended in a crowded building. He's firing it at, at Harrison Ford, the doctor. And we nevertheless see Ford unscape unharmed onto the street. He runs across an unremarkable concrete plaza, which is notable for the Picasso sculpture situated there. And then we again hear the bagpipes and see the parade. This time we see young women, a baton twirlers, a juggler, and crowds um, that are perfect for someone dressed as an everyday person to get lost in. There's marching bands, there's horse-drawn carriages, there's lots of people walking. The eye wants to distinguish between those participating in the raid, uh, the parade, excuse me, in the parade, and those who are onlookers, uh, but that's pretty difficult, if not impossible. It's as if we're seeing the parade from the perspective of both Dr. Kimball, who sees it as opportunity for getting lost, and the marshal. Whose, um, who's faced with this obstacle of, to finding uh, his prey. So this is a brilliant public space to employ as a hiding spot because it's impossible to see through or around um, the crowded thoroughfares. And this is truly camouflage in plain sight because the doctor is wearing muted colors, his hair, his height, his clothing, they're all within average range, um, unremarkable. So he, he really blends well into the crowd. And what you see in the movie are real twirlers, real marching bag bands, pack, 
bagpipe players, etc., because the scene was shot during the 1993 Chicago St. Patrick's Day Parade. Indeed, at the same time that Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones were at the parade, doing their scene with their whole crew, another movie production team was also filming, and they, they ran into each other. That's not shown in the movie. Okay. So we proceed with the city as maze, an easy place to be anonymous. Dr. Kimball resumes his search for um, the guilty party and the murder of his wife, this one-armed man. And we have mixing images of his own memories, photos he finds in the home of the correct one-armed man, financial info that... um, brings his mind to the point where he has his light bulb moment and he realizes that a financial scheme was afoot that led to his wife's murder and actually should have been his murder. So a long while later, after connecting the dots about a drug trial by a major pharmaceutical company to the murder and an additional killing, uh, we are again using an iconic setting of Chicago streets for a pedestrian chase. We're under the L at the Clark Lake Street Station, a major hub in downtown. We see the one-armed man, now long since identified in the movie, following Dr. Kimball up the stairs to the L station. They meet on a subway car, and the one-armed man is armed (laughs) with a gun pointed. A fight scene ensues. Our hero, of course, prevails and escapes because we have more of the movie. The police arrive too late, and our anonymous-looking everyman hero walks past quite a few people to get out of the L. Nobody stops him. He's just another guy. So let's talk about the L a little bit. We're not going to go into a full history here, but a little bit. And I'm long since past time to drink a little bit of coffee here. Okay, so the L. First, what is an L? Uh, It's just a shorthand name for an elevated railway. Basically, it's the same as a subway, except above the ground. Indeed, above everyone's heads. So think of the analogy of a tunnel compared with an overpass. Um, An overpass that goes even above people's heads. So now um, I have to to confess that I've already made an error spelling L. I've spelled it E-L. And I looked this up, and such a spelling is used to refer to the L in New York, but the L in Chicago is just referred to with a capital letter L. And this was intentionally chosen for the sole purpose of distinguishing the Chicago elevated subway from New York City's. This goes way back. This is not recent. (laughs) This spelling hails back to the time when Chicago's elevated railway lines were separately owned. So clearly the sense of being the second city goes deep into the history of Chicago's DNA. It's like Chicago pizza, but different, right? New Yorkers, we we just call our pizza pizza. But Chicago, you call it Chicago pizza. You know what I'm saying? So as a native New Yorker, I'm going to offend all of you Chicagoans even further than I have already by saying that, you know, this seems very insecure on the part of Chicago. You know, New York doesn't have that insecurity. We may have others. We're neurotic, but we're not constantly comparing ourselves to another city. Anyway, back to the elevated railways. Although there are other cities with elevated railways in parts of their system, so we mentioned New York, there's Cleveland, Philadelphia, Atlanta, the D.C. Metro in parts of D.C., Maryland, and Virginia um, operates on, on elevated railways. But Chicago is the only city where most of the downtown has an L with elevated stations. And I remember the first time I was in Chicago at the Loop, how strange this felt because I had grown up with the notion that an L basically indicated that you were further out in a less important neighborhood. But this is not so in Chicago. 
We're going to leave the history of the Chicago L for another episode, but I will say it began operating in 1892, predating the opening of the subway in Boston, which was the first subway in the U.S., but well behind London's. New York's L is much older, having begun operation in 1878. Um... And Chicago never did away with its downtown portion of the L, but it did eventually build parts of uh, two of its lines uh, to venture underground in that already very crowded area. Back to our movie. Most of the rest of this movie takes place inside and on the roof of a hotel where cardiology conference is taking place. The bad guy doctor, whom we've seen in parts of the movie, is about to reap the fruits of his research shenanigans um, and reap the rewards of the two murders he's paid for. But of course, our hero, Dr. Kimball, Harrison Ford, storms in. They meet. A fight ensues, which takes us, the marshals, closing in as we go to the end where we are in the maze of the hotel's laundry facility. It's good doctor, bad doctor, and marshal. By the time we leave the hotel, all is right. Case is solved. The federal marshal and law enforcement are... Um, generally know who is really guilty. During the movie, there's nice uh, but brief appearances by a very young Jane Lynch, um, by Julian Moore at the beginning of her career, and by Celia Ward, who plays uh, the wife in, in flashbacks. And we're going to end with The Fugitive there and go on to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Don't worry, we'll talk about The Fugitive again before the episode is over. More coffee. Okay. All right. So Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where Chicago is used as a backdrop for ignoring the rules of society in an entirely different way than we see in The Fugitive, this time for enjoying a fun day. Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is the ultimate comedy version that combines two genres, the chase movie and the teenage adventure bonding movie. Except here, the chase, the bonding, and the adventure basically take place in the almost backyard of the main characters who don't travel far. Uh, these characters are Ferris, his best friend, and his girlfriend. And the ones doing the chasing are the high school principal and Ferris's sister. The parents are, are basically clueless. And with a kid like this, it's, it's a little unbelievable that they're so clueless, but they are. They don't suspect Ferris uh, at all. Um, our Ferris Bueller teens live in an affluent suburb of Chicago. And when it's time to let loose on a day of playing hooky, they head for the big city and its iconic locations. Ferris himself played by Matthew Broderick, is definitely the kind of friend whom a parent would call a bad influence. But he's also that kind of friend that's too charming to dislike, if you've ever known those among your, your kids' friends or among your friends. Uh, so when this movie goes by the L and to a parade, the feel is very different from The Fugitive. It's spring, it's sunny, it's time for our leader, leading characters to be happy together. Uh, forget the parents you fooled, the sister who's on to you, the principal who wants to catch you faking being sick. This is not a movie where our per- <laughs> this is not a movie where our protagonist is concerned about such things. He's not thinking about college applications. And I'll say this: even though this movie is a 1986 movie at the height of high crime rates, the height of fear of cities generally, Chicago is seen as clean. Not at all gritty or dirty or scary. Um, Being white, upper middle class, or in the case of the best friend, actually wealthy, and enabling themselves of the luxury of the best friend's dad's car, uh, they drive into the city. No fear, no discomfort. Um, The best friend, Cameron, is played by Alan Ruck. And the car was supposed to be a 1961 Ferrari. So that would have been a 25-year-old car um, as it was. But 
what we see in the movie was a practically identical replica, a GT Spider California, which was built for the movie with an automatic transmission instead of a stick shift because, it was rumored, Matthew Broderick, being a Manhattan kid, had no idea how to operate a stick shift. I can relate, being from Brooklyn. And I'll guess that uh, Broderick didn't probably have that much experience driving around a city or driving with a stick shift. But that's just speculation on my part. Uh, According to to a piece in Collier's Auto Media, which is posted in the episode notes, and I quote, The Ferris Bueller Ferrari has developed a cult following in the 30-plus years since the movie debuted. It's one of the most recognizable cars in the world, and even the replicas have been sold at auction for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Enthusiasts around the world have drooled over the Ferrari model, and wealthy collectors have paid record amounts to own such a significant piece of not only car history, but American cultural history. So the teens drive into the heart of Chicago in the supposed Ferrari, to the loop, under the L, in a car that Cameron is forbidden to use. Indeed, his dad loves the car more than his son. So when we see the L, our affluent suburbanites do not actually go up the stairs to ride the subway. Rather, the L is portrayed as part of the streetscape to show us where we are in the heart of Chicago. And this is where the movie is a gem. There's plenty of these kind of things, these scenes in the movie, um, that take something that, that... that's not central to our story, but that is just very funny and makes the movie so enjoyable. So here we have a scene in the parking garage where they're going to park this Ferrari. It's a very ordinary downtown garage. The scene is only about 30 seconds long, but it's very funny because we have the garage attendant who is obviously not well paid. He's certainly not intellectually satisfied with this job, and he gives our trio a look, and he says in a very unconvincing way that he's a professional. The car will be well taken care of. Soon we see the attendant and his fellow employee bursting out of the garage in the Ferrari, speeding onto the street. And by the way, they are going the wrong way on a one-way street that was redirected for the movie. And they are soon seen speeding in the Ferrari, practically flying with looks of pure glee on their faces, and the music from Star Wars is playing. It's just fabulous. While in the city, our trio visit the Chicago Art Institute, a fabulous museum located on Michigan Avenue near the Loop and Lake Michigan and between Grant Park and Millennium Park. Millennium Park was not built at the time of the movie and instead, according to Curbed Chicago, and I quote, aerial shots in the film show the sprawling train yards that would later get capped by lush gardens, playgrounds, art sculptures, and a Frank Gehry-designed band shell, end quote. The Art Institute is a wonderful Trevor Trove, treasure trove, excuse me, of a muse, art museum to get lost in. And the three characters take us on a quick tour to some very well-known treasures. More coffee, and then I'll tell you uh, what artists we can, you know, see works from in this movie. On our quick tour, we see works from Surratt, Hopper, Cassatt, Modigliani, Chagall, Gauguin, Picasso, Matisse, and Kandinsky, among others. Uh, Ferris, his girlfriend, and his best friend also play tourists, and they go to the top deck at the Willis Tower, previously known as the Sears Tower. At 110 stories, the Willis Tower held the title of tallest building in the world for 25 years after it was built in 1973, and the top floor is a popular tourist attraction. 
And we have to talk about the parade scene because the movie production basically crashed the parade without entering, asking permission. They entered a float into Chicago's Von Steuben Day Parade in September of 19. 19- uh, 85, I think it was. And what is Von Steuben's day, you might ask? And who exactly was this Von Steuben? Okay, well, I'm going to answer those questions for you, burning as they are in your mind. I was like, who is this guy? Excuse me, that was a burp. All right, <laughs> a little more coffee. It turns out that von Steuben was quite the Revolutionary War hero, and perhaps one could say he was heroic and certainly ahead of his time in another respect. He was born, get this name, Friedrich Wilhelm Ludolf Gerhard Augustine Louis von Steuben, a name that later changed, by the way, but I'm not going to bore you with that whole string of names. He was born into a Prussian military family in 1730, a time when the Prussians had uh, probably the finest European army. And Vashtuman established his own impressive military resume, receiving accolades and gaining in position. By the time he's uh, the age of 47 in 1777, He's a well-established guy, and he meets Benjamin Franklin in Paris through a prominent French connection. Um, By this time, von Steuben has been granted the title of baron for his service to a small German principality. Um, And when he's talking to to Franklin and and he shows interest in this New World conflict, uh, Benjamin Franklin was already sick of arrogant, upper-level European army professionals who said they would cross the Atlantic and serve with the Continental Army in exchange for money, title, and whatever. He's like, get lost. He told von Steuben that his cause uh, was only looking for volunteers. So if you want to come without pay or promise of anything, you know, feel free. We'll take you. Uh, Von Steuben seemed to be offended, and he returns to Prussia, but he soon finds himself fired from his job. And I'll quote from Wikipedia here. It is speculated that he was or was accused to be a homosexual. It is unknown whether or not this occurred, and regardless, no charges were pursued. End quote. Now, remember, he's a man of position, so uh, this could have been. In any case, von Steuben travels across the Atlantic. He comes to meet then-General Washington and a young Alexander Hamilton, who, remember, was General Washington's secretary. And as von Steuben is on the same wavelength of these two anti-BS, anti-war profiteering and other shenanigans professionals who are devoted to winning this armed conflict to free the 13 colonies from the mother country, So it doesn't take long, and in 1778, only a few months after commencing his service as a volunteer, von Steuben is named Inspector General of the Army by Washington, and he is from then on afforded the rank and pay of a major general. So sometimes volunteer work does sometimes lead to uh, a career. So von Steuben impresses these two founding fathers with his organization of army camps, holding strict inspections, establishing a system of record-keeping to root out and to avoid, uh, quoting Wikipedia again, administrative incompetence, graft, war profiteering, end quote, that existed. And I have not even mentioned von Steuben's war-changing, perhaps history-changing accomplishment of training the troops using an honor guards demonstration and also uh, instituting gradual level-based training from the ranks of the enlisted uh, through officer classes. He also altered the use of weapons, which resulted in critical military success. Uh, Now, our man was also notable beyond his military and administrative accomplishments. And here, in the late 18th century, von Steuben was about as openly gay as a man could possibly be. He was never married, never had children, and and that was uh, 
a key way uh, back in the day for men and women to accumulate money and connections, um, not to mention for hiding one's homosexuality. Instead, he remained single. He had a few adopted sons whom he adopted in adulthood, though they were much younger than himself. Uh, these two lived and traveled with him for decades. Um, and this was this adoption scenario was not uh, a, a, an uncommon cover for for gay men who were a little bit more, I'll say, somewhat out uh, in this area in this era. And in his will, he left his property to the, these men as well. So von Steuben was in attendance for uh, Washington swearing-in as the first U.S. president. And if you attended high school in New York State, this is for you. Von Steuben was appointed a regent for what became the University of the State of New York. So if, like me, you recall, with fondness or horror, those uh, New York State Regents exams that college students take and the scholarships, uh, you can thank von Steuben in some small way, although the exams were not established until 1876. There are towns uh, named after von Steuben, and there are statues of him, including one in Lafayette Park, which sits kind of on the far side of the park, furthest from the White House. Um, and one more statue sits at another prominent site, Valley Forge National Historical Park. Uh, now, von Steuben Day parades are held um, in his honor, honor around his birthday in September in many U.S. cities, including Chicago, uh, sometimes in conjunction with Oktoberfest celebrations, a combo for German cultural celebration. And now you know more than you ever thought you would about uh, von Steuben, um, and so you can enjoy the uh, celebratory uh, exuberant parade scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. A little more coffee. All right. And I'll have you know, I don't even drink that much. It's like a cup and a half, okay? Just a little bit. Okay. So unlike the fugitive where the St. Patrick's Day parade there, though equally joyous and crowded, acts as urban anonymity camouflage for our hero and a difficult place to pick him out of the crowd for the pursuing law enforcement agents... In Ferris Bueller, the Von Steuben Day Parade provides a platform for our hero uh, to be playing hooky in spectacular fashion, loud, proud, and with music. We have streetscape as shared space, people enjoying the street together. We see Ferris's friend and girlfriend walking together, ha having temporarily lost Ferris and speculating about where he might be when we suddenly hear Ferris's voice over a loudspeaker. He's making an announcement that he's going to perform a song and he's dedicating it to his friend. And suddenly we see three young woman, women uh, on a float dressed in traditional German outfits. They separate and there's Ferris beginning to lip sync the song Danke Schön, which is sung by Wayne Newton. We then follow the friend and girlfriend as they stroll past the giant Alexander Calder sculpture Flamingo at Freedom Plaza, a giant orange-red sculpture that is 53 feet tall and one can walk under it. To quote from the Culture Trip blog, this sculpture was commissioned by the U.S. General Services Administration, uh, I'll go outside the quote for a moment to say that's a, a government uh, agency. Back to the quote. As a flavorful piece to go in front of the Kluzinski Federal Building. This was the first work of art ever commissioned by the GSA under the Federal Percent for Art program that allocates a percentage of a project's budget to public art. End quote. So we're hearing Danke Shane while we're seeing this. And then uh, we see uh, Ferris again singing K 
continuing to sing this song. And when it's over, he continues with another song, Twist and Shout by the Beatles, all while dancing. And we can see actual real people at or near the parade dancing. That includes a real construction worker and a window washer dancing. They, they're, they're actually at the parade hearing the music and they start dancing. Um, now, because the parade was see, was shot not only at the actual parade, but also um, a couple of weeks uh, later uh, with locals who are standing in as extras, um, we see some locals in there who are performers. Uh, we see a dance group. We see identical triplet lawyers and others. Um, and at one point, we see Ferris's dad dad dancing in his office where he can hear the parade music it's a great great scene very festive in how it's uh spliced together these different parts and i'm not going to go into the hijinks and plot twists as our three return to their suburb and as we follow ferris home his sister saving him in the end from the principal uh, this is not a kind of movie with a bad ending, right? This is an all's well uh, that ends well kind of movie. Other actors seen in Ferris Bueller, uh, in addition to Jennifer Grey, whom I mentioned as Ferris's sister, uh, we have a brief scene with Charlie Sheen, who plays a bad boy whom the sister meets. We have Edie McClurg as the school secretary and Ben Stein as uh, a teacher. In the beginning of the movie, and Ferris's girlfriend was played by Mia Sarah, and we're going to end up with a little bit of a look at both movies together, and a little bit more of Chicago history after I sip my coffee. It's pretty cold, but it's still good. Okay. So, in both movies, we see the L, we see the Chicago River, these two iconic You're In Chicago visuals. In both movies, we see the streets, particularly in the parade scenes. Um, we see those streets as lively, even boisterous spaces for people to be get together or to just go about their business. In both, the characters are familiar with the city and they're comfortable there. And in both, uh, the characters are kind of hiding in plain view and avoiding getting caught. Uh, in Ferris Bueller, it's, it's because they've, they've left the suburbs so nobody even knows they're in Chicago, right? Um, and more directly in The Fugitive with our hero weaving in and out in places in the city. In fact, in both movies, we pretty much know, we're given the message that the characters are not going to be caught. Um, we don't know the twists along the way, but we kind of know that their knowledge of the city is going to protect them. Um, and in, because in Chicago movies we see so much of the streets both downtown and elsewhere, uh, let's talk now for a few minutes about the history of Chicago and its streets. We're going to begin a different um, Chicago-focused episode with a moment in equity about its in the indigenous history of Chicago. Uh, but the city of Chicago as we know it today was founded by uh, its first permanent non-indigenous inhabitant who was a free African-American man who had emigrated from Haiti, a man named Jean-Baptiste Pointe-du-Sabel, or Sable, and I'm... Definitely mispronouncing that. He selected the location because it was on the river, so perfect for maximizing one chances for success in businesses relating to trading. And so in 1780, Point du Sable, our founder, begins farming there. Uh, he begins trading and also hosting overnight travelers. Um, and I will say more in that upcoming moment in equity uh, because there were pre-existing trade routes in the area. So when we do another Chicago episode, I'll do that. Um, so Chicago's first plan was adopted in 1830. That's 19 years after New York's first plan. In 1830, Chicago was basically a village of 
barely if even 300. A surveyor, James Thompson, was paid to produce a plan, and he envisioned mostly straight, parallel, and perpendicular streets with alleys in between for deliveries and garbage pickup, or that's what later these alleys were used for. Uh, like New York, uh, Chicago grew in size due to annexation of nearby small towns. In New York, think Greenwich Village. In Chicago, think Hyde Park. But there were many others in Chicago. So by the end of the 1800s, Chicago had grown exponentially, with additions way larger than the area of this original town. And in the episode notes, there's an entertaining and informative video on this topic and the problem, problem that followed. Uh, this problem was that many street names in this enlarged city, composite of previously separate towns, created a mess. Not in terms of street design, but in terms of street names and addresses. There were, for example, 13 streets named Washington. There were multiple Sheridans, Forests, and other streets, um, even multiple identical addresses. The post office was at its wit's end, and it was difficult to give anyone directions. Uh, maps uh, aren't of much help in this situation, at least without tons of color coding, even then, and uh, you probably need tons of color coding and local knowledge. So how Chicago solved this problem is a story of a persistent volunteer who had a detailed and logical plan, who attended hundreds of meetings, and pressed for his idea over a long period of time. And this is an idea that brought sanity to Chicago that is very much part of its self-image, but that brought not one penny, supposedly, uh, that's what everyone says, to our, our hero. So our unhung... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry for that. <laughs> Our unsung hero, except in various blog posts and encyclopedia entries, um, and perhaps some Chicago history podcasts, was one Edward P. Brennan. He was a bill collector who worked downtown in the Loop and who lived in the Rogers Park neighborhood. He went on vacation uh, one summer to Paw Paw, Michigan, and as one does on vacation, he brought along tons of maps of his home city to study during his time off. Before he had returned to home and office, Brennan had developed uh, his very rational street name and address system, uh, which Chicago uses to this day. Uh, mostly. I have to say most of Brennan's plan was adopted. There are uh, a few things that weren't, but mostly. So the plan placed point zero for Chicago at State and Madison streets. Everything is measured from that point. Uh, it suggested renaming streets to eliminate duplicate names, a numbering system to indicate on which side of a street an address would be found, renumbering addresses to indicate distance from that point zero, renaming streets to indicate direction for whether a street runs north or south or east or west, um, and renaming streets to begin with the same letter to designate north-south North-South streets within the same mile as an indication of how west they are on State Street. Um, most of Brennan's original plan was, as I said, adopted. So who was this Brennan? And I'll say he was basically a nobody. He didn't have connections to or education in city planning. He wasn't related to or friendly with any important people. Um, he wasn't politically active, it seems. He was literally one pretty average guy who in 1901 sent his letter to the city council. And I think it's pretty safe to say that had it ended there, uh, his letter would just be some archived letter um, that nobody would know about. And I'll take a sip of coffee here. Uh, what's amazing is Mr. Brennan's persistence. 
He persisted for 35 years, attending literally hundreds of city hall meetings um, while he had a full-time job and a family. Now, the plan was adopted in 1908, so that's, you know, not too many years after this 1901 letter. But it took a long time uh, for the plan to be fully implemented. According to the Encyclopedia of Chicago, and I quote, Brennan acted as chair of the subcommittee on street numbering and signs at the City Club, which actively campaigned for the elimination of duplicate street names and posting of clear signage, end quote. Uh, There was an employee of the MAPS department, one John P. Riley, who helped to put the plan into its final form. The city also expanded the plan to include the streets in the loop. In 1937, uh, the city council honored Brennan with a resolution and with a two-block-long street. It is located at 2300 East between 96th and 98th Streets. And we're going to leave the famous 1909 plan of Daniel Burnham for a different episode. And with that, I will thank you very much for listening today. Contribute your thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram, Altered Mobility. Have a wonderful two weeks, a wonderful holiday season. Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, and whatever. And I will see you, or actually, you will hear me very soon. Bye-bye. Sorry.